0: Good morning. I am neither Jake nor Adam. I am filling in. I'm Kevin Amundsen, one of the elders here at Redemption City Church. Due to some sickness, uh, we are shuffling things, but we are worshiping here together. We will keep the, those who are sick in our body, in our prayers. And we are taking a break from our Story of the Bible series and focusing on the incarnation of Christ during the season of Advent. Historically, throughout church history, the season of Advent has sought to bring the incarnation of Christ, the necessity of Christ, to bear on our minds so that we can reflect on the true source of life, which is through Christ. So our desire for this season of Advent is to examine the humility of Christ. And we're going to be preaching four different sermons um, on humility so that we might learn from the truest source, which is Christ. Let's open with a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit that is among us. Thank you for the body that you have built here in this assembly of Redemption City Church, I ask that you would empty me of myself, that you would fill my, worth, my, word, my mouth with your words to proclaim your truth and your majesty, that we would honor and extol you as the God of heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name. Our passage is one verse, basically. Proverbs 15, verse 33 the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. The book of Proverbs is part of the wisdom literature of Scripture. In Proverbs, truths, um, basic fundamental concepts of life are distilled into very pithy sayings or stories. Sometimes there is a theme, such as riches or, riches or poverty, which is woven Throughout them, so we can see what um, economic choices uh, result in. Sometimes there's a character, oftentimes um, something like a harlot, that exposes the dangers of certain actions and moral consequences. This um, text before us is an educational maxim, it simply states a fundamental truth in a general form that is true through all ages. The first part of the maxim is, The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. Here we are to recognize that the right and holy object of our fear is God. It is Yahweh himself that is to be revered and esteemed with the highest sense of awe. This awesome nature and being of the triune God is what is set before us. Solomon wants to bring our minds to the distinction between the creator and the creation. We are to take a form of humility, to bow before the God who has created this world. This God is to be realized as the creator of heaven and earth, the absolute sovereign Lord. God's will is law, and no man can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? We are to fear God, not only as the awesome creator, but in everything that he reveals himself to be to us. Isaiah 33:22 says, "For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king; he will save us." So the fear of God is to s- submit ourselves in the total being and government of God, as he is our judge, lawgiver, king, and savior. The fear of God functions, as we were told earlier in the book of Proverbs, as the foundation or fountain of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. If we fail to fear the Lord, then, we overstep our own bounds and promote ourselves or an institution in God's place. This is compared to idolatry throughout the Bible. Any individual or institution that claims the fear of God for themselves, that is not owed to them, provokes judgment upon themselves. Our God is a jealous God, and he does not share his glory with another. It is a fearful thing to recognize that God is jealous, for he is a living God. This is the dread that came upon everyone in Scripture who is undone in the very presence of God. Job and Isaiah both stop their mouths and cease from speaking when God reveals who he is to them. Our passage says, The fear of the Lord is instruction. That is, that when we recognize the true nature of God and our proper position to him, we are to fear him and that that fear instructs us. It educates and disciples us in or toward wisdom. Martin Luther rendered this passage, The fear of the Lord is discipline to wisdom. In Proverbs, wisdom is the application of godly fear to all areas of life. This moves beyond the statement of fear as the foundation of wisdom, but as a continuing practice that must be applied. It is the right school of wisdom, and humility then is the right way to honor. Any instruction that fails to root itself in the fear of God leads to the school of folly. So our second maxim humility comes before honor. This is a statement in Hebraic parallelism where the the first clause um, and the second clause correspond to each other. So that the Lord the fear of the Lord is compared with humility and wisdom is compared with honor. The act of fearing God produces in us humility. Our fear of God puts us on the proper footing to lower ourselves and exalt God. This is the hallmark of humility. We properly order ourselves in God's world so that we do not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Pride is the lack of humility. Just as darkness is the absence of light, so pride is the absence of humility. All we have to do is stop being humble, and we expose our pride. Pride is also the original sin of our first parents. Before Adam and Eve ate uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their pride was already active. The first sin that took root in their heart was the desire to be like God. Adam and Eve simply explored the possibility of being equal with God, to be independent and determine good and evil for themselves. Adam obeyed Walt Disney's famous maxim, just follow your heart. And as consequence, he plunged the entire world into sin and death. Pride now is the natural state of fallen man. It is the ever ready and ever eager enemy of us all. James says the quarrels and fights among you exist because of contention and unchecked desires and pride. Pride resides within us as a burning ember, waiting for any opportunity to flame into a roaring fire. The ember of pride is only kept in check by constantly smothering it with humility. Pride is also insatiable. It is always before us. It is never satisfied. And we are to present ourselves in battle against it. In his work, The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, probably the greatest Christian novelist who has ever lived, draws a vivid picture of the dangerous and dreadful dragon of pride as the dragon Apollyon. This terrible dragon would consume and altogether destroy Christian, except that Christian feared the God who had called him and saved him. Christian was no match for the strength of the dragon in his own strength. But through the power of the shield of faith and the sword, which is the word of God, Christian was able to withstand and defeat the pride-filled dragon. This is the way that God works in our lives. He trains us and prepares us and strengthens us to practice humility and meekness. In the New Testament, meekness is often translated for the same word as humble. We see that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is often considered um, mousy and timid, someone who's weak. But in, in, um, in reality, meekness is an equestrian term which refers to a horse that has been trained to take the bit and the bridle. In the Bible, meekness refers to someone who has been prepared or trained for a task. Humility carries the same connotation as we recognize that our place is to fear God. And our part in the world is to extol him and lower ourselves. In our passage, we are told that humility comes before honor. Humility isn't the end all. Humility goes in front of honor. This is not a genie in the bottle kind of uh, a trick that just results in something. If we're humble, we just we get honored. It is the result that God has promised to produce in those that he has humbled. Honor is not worldly recognition. That would only stoke the embers of our pride and exalt ourselves. Honor is the restoration to fallen man of of his heart that was hostile to God. Honor is a renewed wisdom in light of the work that God has done in us. For the Christian, our honor is our new standing as a son of God. We are made co-heirs with Christ in the inheritance of the new creation. We are co-workers with him in the proclamation and the heralding of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the honor that the humble receive. And this honor is a motivating factor in our continued submission to the will of God. God's work in our lives leads us to obey his will. This in turn glorifies God. His glory is magnified by the faithful obedience to his people. Our great desire on the last day is to hear the words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. This is the result of God being faithful to his own covenant. It is not by any merit on our own part, but because God has sworn by an oath to exalt the humble. He has assured us that the last will be first, that the humble shall come to honor, and that the meek shall inherit the earth. Let's examine how Christ fulfills true humility in his person and life and work on earth. In Luke chapter 22... Verses 24 through 27, it says, A dispute also arose among them, that is his disciples, and to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest? And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table? Or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Let's look at this last statement. The God of the universe condescended to the whole humble state of a foot washer. Christ serves his disciples as an example of humility for us. This humility stems from Christ's submission to his own Father. Jesus tells us in no uncertain words that he has emptied himself for the sake of his Father's will. In John 6, verses 37 through 40, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me, come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus submitted to the will of his Father as the sinless and perfect man in the sublime example of humility. He fulfills all that the first Adam failed to do. Jesus is faithful in being about his Father's business. From the time he was a young boy in the temple speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees until he was raised upon the cross for the sins of the world, Jesus was always obedient and meek unto the plan and purpose of God the Father. He was not proud like Adam. He was not stubborn and rebellious as the Israelites in the wilderness. He did not disguise his actions to protect his own credibility as David did. Jesus, in his incarnation was always faithful to fear the Lord. This should fill us with a sense of exuberant joy. It is only because Jesus lived a perfect life and humbled himself to the point of death that we are able to be saved from our sins. And this is the only true answer to pride. It is a regenerate heart. So I want to look at the mirroring of Christ to our proverb here. The second part says humility comes before honor. And in Jesus' incarnation, we see two parts. His humiliation and his exaltation. In Christ's humiliation, he assumes the status of God's servant. He takes the servant's form, as Philippians 2.7 says. He came to do the will of the Father. Thus he became obedient unto death. Jesus was the representative who bore the sin and guilt of God's elect. Christ was pure and without sin, yet God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And second, in Christ's exaltation, we see Christ ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. He has been given majesty, power, authority, dominion, and a kingdom. Christ made the sufficient sacrifice once for all. He now has total and legitimate claim to the lost realm of Adam. What Adam failed, Christ, as the last Adam, succeeds in and takes up the mantle of. Jesus, as the last Adam, is also the head of the new humanity, who receives glory, Christ, as the head of the new humanity, I'm sorry, has received glory, glory, laud, and honor, and we are to bless his glorious name. I want to examine, in light of the humility that we are to showcase, that Christ has showcased to us. What are some practical steps we can do to combat pride in our own life? The first is to live each day in the light and the presence of God. John Calvin said that we are to live our every day of our life before the face of God, as if he's looking right at us, because he is. Job and Isaiah teach us, I'm sorry, We are to take every opportunity to forget ourselves and serve others. These acts of service are innately humbling. When we recognize who God is and what he's called us to, it is a joyful thing that we would serve others, that we would seek to build others up. And in that way, we can live before the face of God. A second way that we can battle our pride, seek a deeper knowledge of God, his glory and his attributes. We just sang a, a Christmas hymn. Christmas hymns are filled with such rich uh, theology. Some of them are packed so tightly, it takes sermons to unravel the complexities within them. The deeper we know God, the less we'll think about ourselves. As Job and Isaiah teach us, there's nothing more humbling than knowing the living God. Study the Book of Job: God communicates to Job who He is. We just re- read at the beginning of the service from the Book of Nahum that God has vengeance. He' is a God to be feared. He is also a God who loves. Search out the psalms that sing and praise and magnify the God that we serve. Third, we can read biographies of great saints. Some examples are the journals of Whitfield, the life of St. Boniface, or Spurgeon's early years. Every great saint has struggled with pride and had to wrestle with humility. And every biography that is worth its salt showcases how they relied on Christ as an example unto them. Fourth, we should remember daily that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. There is a promise in Scripture that the proud will be undone. If we will not humble ourselves before God willingly, he will humble us in our pride. It will not be pretty. It will be a catastrophic fall. Bear that in mind. And then fifth, pray for humility. We can't be humble without the Spirit working in us. Otherwise, we, we prop ourselves up and showcase our own humility. We pray prayers like the Pharisees. Thank God I'm not like that man. That is not what we are called to. We are called to humble ourselves, to root out the sin in our own life. That we may practice the righteousness of God by His strength and by His Spirit. Let us pray for that. Our gracious Heavenly Father, your word illuminates as a lamp unto our feet. It guides us and it directs us. Our own wisdom apart from you is nothing but folly. Give us your spirit, O God, to be active in humility, to root out the pride of our own lives, to see it for the ugly thing that it is, not as some pet that we can keep around and pull out of the closet every once in a while, but as something that we must wage war against, else it will destroy us. Prepare our tongues to speak about the fear of God to our fellow neighbors, that we can ever and always hold you up as the great and mighty, loving and vengeful God that you are, We wish to worship you. We wish to praise you. We wish to thank you for your incarnation. For coming to us. To dwell among us. To take on flesh in human form. That you might satisfy the wrath of the curse. For the law cannot be set aside. But Christ bore it on our behalf. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.